Not fair, I'm on the spot, I'm on the spot. Okay, you're recording on the spot. Hey everybody, welcome Hi to episode everybody. This is episode 1395. <laughs> and today we are cheating because we are in a different Starbucks. Oh We're in God, a different we're Starbucks. In our Starbucks. We're seeing, this is a nice Starbucks actually. It's this is where up. it's got good air conditioning that actually works. Um, doesn't have direct sunlight on it just now, although I think it might do later. And at the moment, it's the Radio 1 big weekend in the park, which means that they have closed off all the roads around Camperdown Park, which is fine, unless you live on the other side of Camperdown Park and need to get anywhere. across anywhere to Dundee. <laughs> That's like me and you, who've got to, yeah. go, we've got to go north now. Yeah, we've got to go around the back, and up I the back. I feel like I need to correct you that at no point today is that sun going to hit this glass. That's south that way. I've sat here with the sun on this corner where we're sat. In the morning. south. It's not going to hit. We've lost it. We've okay, lost so everybody now feels so much better to know that. And wow. that's See, how Don the podcast... Like the correction from Jess. Everyone laughs when I get corrected from Don. I know, I know, because <laughs> then they're thinking you're being really picky and silly about it, and they don't really care where the sun is, because they're not sat here. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> but anyway, this is this is a nice Starbucks. It's a little more spacious. It's by a, a big Morrison's in uh, in Dundee. So even if you can't get parked, a Morrison's across the way. So it's really interesting because the... As well as the, them closing all the roads off, they put traffic cones on all the side roads because obviously everybody would park up and walk and you can hear it from quite a distance, as you'd notice. And so I went this morning on the way to Perth, snuck out before they shut all the roads off to the Starbucks that, that's kind of on my way. And all the roads had traffic cones on them on that industrial estate where they can't find places to park anyway. So all these people were going to turn up to work and go, uh, can't go to work today, sorry, going home. <laughs> So I was at school today, I was at high school, um, I do uh, partnership work with Developing Young Workforce which is an organisation across Scotland that helps people who might be more vocationally focused, young people in schools, they work with schools to get them placements and get people to come in and give them opportunities and different ideas of what they can do. And uh, I think it was Tuesday, they said, uh, are you free? to go to this school and do a talk. S5 students, so it's seniors who are in their exam years, and um, there'll be about 100 of them. You come talk from 9 till 10.30. Now, my policy is you say yes, and you deal with the consequences afterwards. So I said yes. <laughs> and they said, I said, where is it? And they said, Perth. I'm like, great, because it's away from Dundee, so it means I've got some chance of being able to get there. Um, they're like, yeah, t 9 till 10.30. So I said yes, and then I thought, huh. I wonder what I'm going to talk about for an hour and a half to all these people. I wonder if I have enough cards and uh, all the kind of what will happen if stuff. So I got there really early, so Jess would have been fuming at me. Because she's like, what's the point? Why are you getting here so early? It's such a waste of time. Um, but it was great. So I got to sit in my car, people watch, which is the most fun of all the students and all the teachers arriving and all that sort of stuff. Enjoyed that. Um, but sitting there uh, feeling really nervous, because I always feel really nervous before I do things. And music in front of children in front of anybody it's um it's I think it's quite natural to feel nervous when you don't know how things are going to work you you're on the spot and I don't want to be boring you know I've, I've been to one of these talks before where somebody was before me and they were so boring and so dry and I, the kids were being incredibly well behaved but I felt really sorry for them so I feel it's my responsibility to make it at least fun and interesting for them. So I'm sitting there feeling nervous and I, I guess we all have 
things that we do when we feel nervous or how we cope with it. I think a lot of people will just avoid the situations that make them feel nervous. They listen to the nerves, but as we both know, I'm really good at not listening to what my head tells me. I just go ahead and do it anyway. So this morning I was thinking about what do I do when I feel really nervous? Because I can feel the physical nerves. I can feel a bit shaky and I know it will go away when I start talking. So my experience tells me, my prediction tells me, I can feel as nervous as I want. It doesn't actually change anything. I'll be fine. And for me, that allows me to accept my nerves rather than listen to them and try and counter them or do something to recover from it. So being able to accept that it's natural to be nervous. I've put myself in a situation where I have no idea really what I'm going to do, but I also know I've done it enough times before that I'll just... I'll go on the fly and it'll be absolutely fine. And it was, of course, absolutely fine. I get into my flow, I tell stories, everybody has a laugh, and um, little light bulbs go off in everybody's head and I get to walk away from it. And, and that's what happened today. But before I do it, it's the fear of the unknown, which I think we all have. So what do you do to cope with it? I don't really cope with it, I just ignore it. I find ignoring works for an amazing amount of things. I think we give too much attention to stuff sometimes. So, so my kid at the moment is going through a bit of a, um, I've got something up with me, this is not normal, these moods and all this sort of stuff. And no matter how much I say you're just being a normal teenager, because there's so much focus on mental health at schools, so much talk about all the different conditions. Because all our friends have a label, I suppose. All other friends have a label, then it feels not okay to just accept that you're hormonal or you're not getting good enough sleep or you've got pressure from your friend group or all the normal things that happen, it doesn't seem okay. It's like I need a label. It's part of that wanting to be special? I don't know if it's just wanting to be special. I think it's wanting to be individual. Is that I, the same thing? Sort of. <laughs> um, I think it's really hard because you're forming your identity. Yeah. And at that age, how do you know who you are? And we've had this conversation, right? We've had podcast conversations about how do we know who we are. And at that age, you've got very little experience. And it's your experiences that teach you who you are. It's the way people treat you that teaches you who you are. Now, if you've got people around you that treat you like you're amazing, like we do, I think my kid's amazing, and unconditionally love you, then that doesn't give you much help. <laughs> So then you kind of look at your friend group and you've got a friend group that's all suffering from autism, ADHD, um, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. They have hall passes for when they have a panic attack in class. They have um, managed to get on the list and actually see somebody from CAMS. They have a GP prescribing them anxiety meds. Then you're like, well, maybe this stuff that I'm experiencing is a something. It's not just, it's not normal, it's a something. Because all my friends have got something, and why is nobody taking me seriously with my something? Um, so we have these conversations, and it's really hard because, Mum, you're a therapist. What do you think? <laughs> yes, I'm a therapist, but I'm also your mother. Um, so this is, a, I, I'm treading on eggshells with some of the conversations. Um, but we had this conversation, which is, Mum, do you think there's, there's something really genuinely wrong here? And, you know, mentally. And I said, well, if you break your arm, your brain is the thing that fixes a broken arm. Nothing's done to fix a broken arm by the medical profession, apart from putting it in a cast so it fixes straight. So the most physical thing you can possibly have is totally a mental thing. 
So whatever you think, it's mental. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. You don't need to say it's real or not real. It's real. Do you think because she's not got any adversity in her life, mm. she's a really supportive, great upbringing, do you think that maybe that's the problem? She's got nothing to compare it to. We call this scalable comparative experiences, right? So you have something happen, and it's really bad, and it's the worst thing that's happened to you, and it fills your life, and you learn to cope with it, and then something comes along that's a lot worse, and you go, oh, that wasn't as bad. So the best example um, is an animal one, which is my cat, right? You know, my cat had a total nervous breakdown when we got the kitten. Permanently broken now. She kind of glitches. She's like, <coughs> and runs out the room when you go in it. Goes, pass me. No, don't pass me. Don't touch me. <laughs> Proper broken. Anyway, happy enough, sort of. So um, I'd reached a point where she was just hiding in the kitchen, she wasn't interacting, she wasn't leaving that room at all, and actually was starting to toilet in the kitchen rather than go out like she'd normally do. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something wrong, maybe she's in pain, maybe there's something that I'm missing and I'm being a really crap owner because I'm just thinking that she's being really shirty and grumpy. But it wasn't just the kitten, she got stuck in someone's house, isn't she? Or she, she well, she had, she, she'd left, she was in the garden refusing to come in, just sitting staring at us and going, I'm not coming in the house, I hate you. And then she fully disappeared and we just assumed she'd left home, but actually she'd been stuck in somebody's house, pretty sure she'd been stuck in somebody's house for two weeks. Um, and so combination of these factors, when she eventually came back, she just would not leave the kitchen. She just wouldn't do anything. And, um, and I eventually thought, well, I'd best take her to the vet just in case I'm missing something that's up with her. Um, so I took her to the vet, but on the way to the vet, she hates being in the car absolutely hates being in the car so she got so stressed with the car journey she was actually panting just sitting there panting her head off bless her and when we got to the vet put her on the table you know sweaty paws panting and the vet's like she's just really stressed try fairly way or something like that so i'm like okay so took her back home but as soon as i took her back home and let her out of her cage she didn't go back to the kitchen she went to the lounge and she started moving around the house more because she's like Right, I was in a stress state, but that, going to the vet thing, that was way more stressful than the way I was feeling before. So this isn't so bad now. <laughs> so she had this kind of weird comparative experience. We've, we got the fell away and she's now living normally in the house and lying in my bed and all that sort of stuff. But So what you need to do for your daughter is have her have some kind of really <laughs> adverse experience. That's the problem, right? I mean, I'm not going to... I'm really glad, really glad that mm. there's not been really bad experiences. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be, like, bad... Like, you know. I'm not experimenting on my child. Well, I'm thinking like something like a challenge, like, you know, send her away for two weeks on a sailing around the world thing, or I don't know, something that makes her do something to overcome adversity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, not going to happen, but I get it. There'll be an opportunity because we can't control our kids' lives, we can't control our own lives, so there'll be something, and at that point, everything else will get perspective. But, you know, it's like uh, when my mother died, that gave Ash perspective because it was the first time that she'd lost somebody she knew. Would you ever take her on holiday to like a third world country or something? I don't think, yeah. it, I don't think it would do much. Ash is an amazing kid, totally, lots of empathy, way more than me. She's really intelligent too. Really intelligent and really resilient, like phenomenally resilient, but doesn't have life circumstances that allow them to see how resilient they are. And, and also how good she's got it. 
Mm. And also how good she's got it. Yeah, and, and you know, cannot because we learn from experience, not from being told, right? So nothing I say... I mean, I remember at her age, I went to Tunisia. Right. And it was eye-opening for me to see, you know, we lived on obviously the hotels, but we went out and, and you know, I saw poverty, like proper poverty. Yeah. That was, um, yeah, quite yeah. interesting experience. I, I think, I don't know whether it would be, give the right perspective. I think Ash would very much connect with it you know sort of kid that gives money to homeless people um doesn't judge people doesn't kind of call people names for situations they're in and said to me a little while book you know if i'm if i'm going to be mean to somebody i'm not going to be mean for something they can't change so i'm not going to have a go at them i'm not going to feel make them feel crap about themselves i'm going to have a go at something they're doing because they can change that and i'm like cool behavior not who you are excellent so i think it's like mostly great and there will be something that happens in life even if it's just getting older getting new experiences that will give perspective but right now it just gets a bit tricky because we kind of do that it's like you have no idea but it's not fair to go you have no idea i had it worse because that doesn't really work but sends the other direction yeah setting up experiences yeah it's something with the puppies right so i'm giving them little um mini adversities mini challenges to overcome like the one i put on patreon this week was the you know, foot high dike, and they couldn't really get to me. They had to climb, and, and they were yep. a bit like, oh, panic. And then they went, oh, did it? And then they, they recovered. And it makes you feel good, right? It makes you feel good for doing that as well. It, it gives you a, a sense of achievement. And that builds, then, yeah, 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 it builds, well, you know, anybody does that. What I see is, um, I see puppy owners panicking about yes. the puppy going, I'm, I can't do something, I'm stressed. So they, they pick them up. I mean, they even do that with, um, adult dogs right so we, we stop them from ever going into a place of um even a little bit of distress or, or rather stress i guess distress is a level up from that um and i've watched working with um kids with anxiety over the years i've watched parents and how they are with them and you know it's, it's difficult because i'm not a parent and it's very easy for me to judge but at the same time, I get to observe and go, interesting how the, the, the parent is um, reinforcing yep. that anxiety by themselves going, you don't have to, it's okay, you don't have to, rather than going, why don't you try it? Yeah, it's really tricky because you are working with the way the brain works. So the lack of understanding consequences and, you know, it can go two ways. If you push somebody into a situation, it, it's like the flooding approach. It can tip you over the edge as much as it can show you that you can cope. If your brain switched off and saying to you, if you do this, this is going to be a really risky situation, then very little of words are going to change the perception of the individual experiencing that. However, if you can show them through experience similar things that they can overcome, then they can build up to that. Yeah, 100%. It's the doing, right? So it is doing. It's easier with dogs because with dogs, you can't say to them, you know, at the other end of this wall is not a pit of doom. You know, we're going we're gonna to do this thing, right? So we physically do it together. Yeah. And with a human, we've got much more, we've got excuses because we can use words. So last night we were, we were talking about how um, when we went to the prison this week, teaching the women how not to talk to the dogs and teaching the women how to yep. talk to the dogs with body language and with, um, so we called it an invisible string where I'm like pulling the dog up by this invisible string or out of the way 
you know, following the food and we start to get more self-aware about our own body language and how it affects others. Yeah. We've done that with children too, haven't we? We taught them about, you know, recognising what they're doing and then body language and other people's and they can read that and there's the, there's the feedback. But, um, I've lost my train of thought. So, um, <laughs> learning by experience and I think, so, um, sidebar, we are working with a prison, a women's prison, um, with the sidebar, new therapy pups, that you have, which are golden retriever puppies that are how old now? Nine weeks. Nine weeks old. Oh yes, yeah, so last time I was before the West Island Way. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it was quite a while back. Hi, this is Jess and Dawn, and we are 60 minutes into a podcast. We haven't actually introduced ourselves <laughs> or talked about any of the stuff that we've been doing. We just did what we do and started talking about Starbucks. So West Island Way was great, thanks for asking. And <laughs> I got a really unique uh, situation where I got to live with um, a client who's now a friend, and uh, this is Atlas and, and Jesse and Sean, and they also uh, had done both sessions with with you. Yep. And so I had Atlas on my own. We did some work with Jesse and Sean. They came up for a week. They went away. They came up. We went away on holiday together. So over a month, we were on and off, and then we we're like in close living yeah, yeah. for a week. And not just living together, but also overcoming um, challenges, cooking together, hanging out, you know. So really intense week of being together, talking dogs, talking life. And I got to witness something really special. And I think it's special for you too, because um, when you work with clients, you tend to go, right, I'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, go live your life. A lot of changes that you can see daily because you're not there. Yeah. And you hope to God they've got a support network that they can, you know, Yeah, plus, you know, I know the support network thing really resonates with you, but you, you have to bear in mind that these people have lived their whole life. If they don't have a support network, they've lived it their whole life without a support network and their issues. And what I do is clear stuff out of the way. So I understand that. I just think that they can catch up with stuff quicker if they've got people who... Spot the difference. Yeah. They can. And, help. and obviously with a married couple, that's even better because these two, I mean... They're phenomenal in their relationship anyway, even regardless of, of, of your work. Um, but it's almost got them closer together because they're um, they're able to they love the bits about each other, even though they had other other I can say issues, but other quirks, right? Yep. So um, I'm sure Sean won't mind me talking about. You know, he was he was telling us um, that he would kind of go, and, and lots of people I'm sure do this. He would. Um, go into a space where he'd sort of glitch um, and he's not doing that now. He feels more confident about making choices now. Yep. And um, she's noticed that change in him and, and supported by you know him going, yeah, I don't do that now. And, and she's changed as well where she's lost that fear to the point where actually she's able to um, understand what's happening, not just go, oh, Jess told me to do this, but actually make choices. So we've had a few examples recently. One of the, one of the good ones was... Um, you know, he was he was in a funny mood at the dog, um, where he might turn and go, I'm gonna I'm gonna bite you. He hasn't bitten now, but he's given lots of nice signals. But he's an uncomfortable dog at some point. And and us part of the process was recognising when he's uncomfortable and giving him space to make choices that are not leaving him just going and need to bite. Yep. So what I did was I created a situation um, by provoking him and when he growled or did something other than biting, I rewarded that. So now we're getting a dog that's going, I'm safe to, to tell you how I'm feeling. Um, 
and Jesse was terrified of that that part of him and now isn't and yep. now is going okay I'm accepting that this dog is now communicating with me so um, she was she recognised that he wasn't comfortable and he needed something to help him to soothe him and she took her sock off yeah it, it's this what on the why so he, she'd been away for the weekend and he was absolutely excited to see her and we know he loses his little mind when he's excited so he was excited his whole body was wiggling his mouth was going and she recognized that she was in a risky position where as he'd lost his mind he might end up biting and and because she understood now the why behind it and she could see his behavior not kind of go into fear because her brain wasn't going automatically into oh my god my dog's gonna bite me and all that sort of panic she could still think she went i don't have anything to give him i need to occupy his mouth and she just took a sock off and stuck it in his mouth and he was just like ah i've got a sock and then he was wiggly body and saying hi it was just such a lovely interaction to see but it was a perfect sign of the work that you've done with him which is make better choices and the work that i've done with her which is you can think your way through this and she has the ability to think but she just wasn't getting allowed to do it by her brain most of the time. But if we'd taken on um, Jessie, Jessie, we, we call it 2.0, right, where she is now, um, <laughs> where she's she's able to think more, but if we met her that day and said you're not thinking, she wouldn't have understood what we were talking about, no. because we all think we're thinking. Yes, we do. But actually she was in survival, and one of the, the things that you've showed me how to recognise when someone's in that, that survival state where they're working on subconscious, which is... I just need to get through it. The machine here is very loud for making their frappuccinos. That's um, what the noise is in the back. So, um, I don't think she'd believe us, but one of the things that you said to me was um, when you tell someone something, they've asked you a question, yep. then they come back with a yeah but. Yep. Yeah, but because we did that all the time. She was doing that a lot. Yeah, but what if? Yeah, but what if? Yeah, but what if? Because she had a million um, different responses in her head that the dog might do yep. she needed an answer for every single one yep. but actually she didn't she just needed to be confident in her own in ability yeah and then she went now i know what to do because it's not about following what jess says it's about understanding why jess says it and trusting yourself so if you're in a, a brain switched off mode you're not trusting yourself you can't trust the way you respond a lot of people might have had issues where something happened as a child that was unfair or um they weren't respected and respected is a really loose term here some adult took ownership of uh, not telling them something because they didn't think it was fair and the child interpreted it as they didn't think i could cope and so they can grow up thinking i can't cope so the inability to trust yourself and rely on your qualities and instead do the time travel thing of i need to predict everything i need to control everything the only way to remain safe is to control everything but what you did was um, take that from her that sounds like magic that sounds like um, the impossible yes but it isn't <laughs> it's just brain programming and in such a short space of time yeah. so we've got one month and their lives have completely changed and and the dogs well, must be the facilitator of that because yes. they would still have their problems that they've got without the dog yeah absolutely yeah that, so it, it's you know for us it's been really interesting because we knew when we started working with them that this was a quotes famous online social media dog and that that would raise the profile of everything that we did and um it, it makes you kind of nervous because 
every mistake you make, everything you try is now quoted and referenced and, and a lot of people have a problem with that. I've had um, accusations over the years, right from the very early days where I started my therapy journey. I uh, was a blogger, so I used to blog, but I used to blog anonymously because I was working for, for BT as a senior manager and um, whilst I wasn't slagging off the company because that would be stupid, I wanted to be able to talk relatively freely, but I didn't want to be getting myself in trouble by talking relatively freely. So um, when I first started my therapy journey, I blogged. I blogged um, before I went to a session, I blogged after the session, but I didn't blog um, what I was actually talking about, because at the time I would have been horrified for anybody to know any of the stuff in my past. I blogged the change in my mind, how I was seeing things differently. And um, a lot of people started following that, finding that really interesting, because it was very open, they were very relatable. But Trevor, who was my uh, my therapist, the founder of the therapy I, I learned how to do, didn't like it because he would say to me sometimes, one of my clients has been reading your blog. I'm like, cool. Um, but you obviously were having a bit of a hard time and, and she now doesn't believe in the process, so you shouldn't blog. So he actually told me once that I should stop blogging because it's not good to let everybody know when you're having a difficult time and it's not working. And my point is, is, A, it's part of my process. For me, if I can express it in a way that other people can read and understand, I can process it. So for me, it's a really important part of my processing is being able to write down what's happening and what I'm working through. Writing it in a journal doesn't count because it doesn't matter how I write it in a journal, but it really matters that I find the right way of expressing it if it's going to go to a public, public use. It also is really good for me to hear people's perspective because that makes me look at it differently. Even if I don't agree, even if they don't agree with me, it's still good for me to kind of consider different perspectives and get out of my head. So I find writing and sharing publicly very useful for me personally. And every time I do it, I get at least one message from somebody privately that says, me too, and thank God you wrote that because I thought there was something wrong with me and all this sort of stuff. So when he told me, you shouldn't write this stuff, it was a really big problem for me because all my life I've been told don't speak, don't tell anybody. And here's the person... But surely he knew that, that that was a problem for you to be told not to do something. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But I actually, I remember, I remember him telling me and I remember how I felt afterwards and that was one of those times where I wanted to give up on everything. Well, somebody I respected who knew me better than anybody at this stage was telling me not to talk. It was like huge, right? So, um, so I know that um, when Jesse posts stuff, people will say you shouldn't be posting stuff like that, you shouldn't do that, and then people will, she's had a lot of toxic kind of comments and stuff, but it's worth it for, for her and for me actually, it's worth it for the people that you do reach and the people that you do change. You just have to be able to go. If you keep your, your eye on the ball that there's much more people that are positive than are negative. Way more, way more, and so, so we know that, both you and I know the impact of people being able to see Jesse's journey, even with people that have known us for a while and have been around us, to see that change. You know, this is a person that on day one walked around the park with us with a hoodie over her head, 
pretty much crying most of the time, even though her dog wasn't there. And that's both going, what are we going to do with this? Yeah, this is... what are we going to do? How is this going to, how is this going to work? You know, kind of constantly looking, you had a shepherd with you at the time going, why isn't that dog muzzled? When you asked her to feed Daxies, she was like, no, 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 I can't do that. And then three weeks later, literally three weeks later, you look for a volunteer to play tug with Tristan, your Marley, while you showed how you could choke out a dog if it was attacking your dog, right? And she volunteered to be the person playing tug with Tristan. That's so weird. And, and I'm like, I was like watching this going, my mind is just blown right now because I remember, because it was only three weeks ago, how you walked around the park crying, hiding under a hoodie. And now this is you. So the difference is not the technicality. She hasn't got skills with dogs. She's not kind of got a mindset change where she can go, oh, I was just being silly, it's okay. There's fundamental changes in her where she now goes, actually, if something goes wrong, I'll be fine because I'll manage with it. And that's, that's mind-blowing when you see it in action. Yeah, it's like a brain transplant. It, it can be. It feels like <laughs> it. But actually, it's just unlocking because that's always been the person that she was. She's always had that capability. And just go back, back a little bit to what you were saying about... Um, you know, stopping you vlogging or talking about um, the, 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 the bad days. Surely therapy isn't about creating someone that is um, happy always and suddenly just doesn't have any problems. Surely therapy is about giving the tools to help somebody overcome when it does get bad. Yeah, we all have our stuff. Like, there's no therapist that's going to stop, make you some amazing robot automaton thing that isn't affected by stuff. That would be wrong and it would be weird and you'd be a, a, a not a natural person if that happened. It's about being a, how quickly you recover. So for me, resilience is not about not being affected at all. Resilience is about going, I'm okay feeling this way, this kind of sucks, and then having a day where you feel sorry for yourself, lick your wounds, and then the next day you just get on with stuff because you know you'll be fine. So it's realizing that inside of you is where the answers are, not through any particular technique or approach or anything like that. So, so my job with my clients is to unlock them, is to let them be the best version of them that they can be. What that is, I couldn't care less. I mean, it sounds like really wrong. So if somebody comes to me for weight loss, I don't care what they weigh. It's not my business, you know. I don't want, care what they eat or what they want to wear. That's... I've got my own life to live. But the fact that they aren't able to make the choices they want to make, that is my business. My business is to make it so it's possible for you to do what you want to do. And I find, personally, that it's my choice that if I share openly what I'm going through, if I share the good and the bad days, so I share the before, during, and after, then you get to see that it's not just like a magic wand fix. You also get to see... Um, that if you're in a bad place, there's a better place afterwards. So the one thing I know from everything I've done is it will always be awesome on the other side. But I also know the bit to get there can be pretty horrible sometimes. But it's like when I said I sit there feeling nervous and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the horrible bit now. I don't think it's like everything's gone wrong and everything's terrible. I go, right, I'm just going to have to write this out. I know so how this works. Pass. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of an acceptance of it. And I, I think acceptance is the word I, I see, tell my clients has the main thing they need to learn differently. Drop the spiky stick, stop beating yourself up, and just start learning acceptance as we clear the stuff out of the way. And then you can go, look, you know, it could go horribly wrong at some point in the future, but now I know I'll deal with it. So, um, 
has it made you I think for me that the the Jesse one uh, particularly because it was so intense it's happened over a short period of time and there's been such huge changes in everybody involved and, and also we've come out different I think well certainly I have um, I feel like my ego uh, it was good for my ego to have some of that um, toxicity stuff on Facebook happen it's made me realise that it doesn't matter what I do um, to be like less self-righteous because no one is right no one is wrong we're all just you know doing do what we do yeah. I've got evidence that my stuff works yeah. and strong evidence yeah and it's quite unique because we're in a situation where every day we're meeting a lot of people. So it's not like I've got, I used to have one client come along, you'd work on them, they'd go away, you'd have one yeah. client come along, a lot of clients working together, a lot of witnesses to, to what's happening. Um, and even even people that you know were working with Jessie, um, the friends and clients of mine, they saw the difference in her too. So That's it's not the like, interesting it's, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're just going, oh, my client's better. Everyone's seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so for me, it's it's helped me recognise that um, we've got our own evidence and our own little bubble. I don't have to prove anybody else it works because all it's all it's necessary is that um, my people and the client and you. You know, we're all on, we're all in the same boat to help. Yeah. You know, together and get this this um, person, this dog, happier um, and on their journey. And um, the you know the no muzzle. Where's the where's the muzzle? Why is there a muzzle? Why is there an e collar? There's no e collar. Dog's too thin. Dog's too fat. You know, every single thing you do, someone's going to be unhappy about it. Yeah. And um, therefore, the only way to please everybody is to do nothing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and that won't please everybody because you're doing nothing, right? Because those people won't like that. I think it's been really good. It has been, and because of the way we talk and the way we interact, it, we do lots of soul searching around it. We've done lots of questioning, and and when somebody objects to something when neither of us the sort of person that just goes they're just an idiot we're not going to listen to them because i'm right we're not kind of the automatic i'm right people we do stop and think about it and you have to kind of go through a set of steps almost to go okay who's saying this what do they know about the story how much of the story do they know what basis are they saying it what is their intent we i think one of the key theme words that's come out over the last wee while has been the word intent um, what is their intent with doing it? And we've seen people who just have a malicious intent. They just need to hear their voice and speak out. But we can easily spin when somebody does that because you do question yourself. You go, the dog does look thin and am I being cruel? Am I tortured? Would somebody else who had no knowledge look at this and say, this is torture, this is cruel? And, and actually think, well, if, if it was true, what could I change slightly that would counter that? Or well, it's just because they can't see this piece of the puzzle. Because that's the thing with social media. There was a post oh, sure. ages ago um, that's probably done the rounds millions of times, which is one of these snow white apples, and you're looking from behind it, and there's a mirror in front of them, and the snow white apple just looks amazing in the mirror. But the view that we have from behind it is there's a massive chunk out of it, and it's rotten. You know, And social media is that. It's what you choose to show and choose to say. So for somebody to think that they have an opinion on what you've chosen to show rather than the full picture is just kind of crazy. It is, and it's, um, it's given me a lot of confidence to be happy with what I have and what I am. Yep. 
and also the wee taste of fame not for me no yeah way. it did make me think very hard about how these um famous people the celebrities cope because i've always felt really sad when i hear about a celebrity killing themselves because you can see um Karine flack for example you know there was a, a spat that she had with her boyfriend and then on social media there was just this massive hate campaign against her and she didn't have somebody to kind of go they're just being muppets and they're just numpties she was taking it seriously she obviously wasn't confident enough in herself anyway and she ended up killing herself because of everybody else's opinions so i i, I see lots of um celebrities post and i see lots of nasty stuff actually jason manford's a really interesting one on instagram and facebook i think he does equally on both um so he's a british comedian um he does uh, pantomimes and all that sort of stuff as well as he does stand-up comedy and um, he's, he's from the north of England he's a genuinely stand-up guy and he is very deliberate about his Instagram he protects his kids he doesn't share things he doesn't need to but people will all the time if he, he, he got these two kind of Siamese style fluffy Siamese kittens and he was sharing photos of them now most of us just go oh my god they're so cute they're adorable some people are like, isn't it nice that you can afford the cats? But you can spend your money, waste your money on all those toys. So we talked about um, catching a taxi early in the morning to catch a train. And they're like, oh, they must be paying you well enough that you can afford a taxi. But he, he just takes, takes the piss out of them. He just doesn't take it seriously. Sometimes he answers people. Um, you know, he, he doesn't try and offend anybody. He's not an offensive kind of comedian. But generally, he gets so many comments on every post like that, and he just tells them to stop being an idiot, basically. <laughs> and, and you've got to, but it's, it grinds you down, right? The, you start second-guessing everything you're saying and everything you're doing and kind of being wary about sharing because people will think. And I think, certainly before we started working with Atlas, I think you were definitely worried about sharing things, especially around e-collars, around what people would say. And now you've had like this kind of flooding experience of realizing it doesn't really matter. <laughs> You can't do right for doing wrong, right? Or do wrong for doing right, or whatever the way the phrase is. So you've got to make a choice. If you choose to be public about what you do, then stand up with your choices, own it, and don't take things personally because they're not. Or go, this isn't for me. I'm going to make a choice not to do this. Yeah. So I know that Jessie gets a lot of hassle from people saying you shouldn't do this well it's her choice she knows exactly what she's doing and when she needed to she's protected herself switched off comments done things like that when she did the west highland way she switched off everything she posted occasionally but she didn't do any interaction she actually gave herself a break her block and delete thumb is bigger than the other one sorry her block and delete thumb is bigger <laughs> than the other one. i do you know i've got a dent in my little finger from where my phone rests i was showing this to ash the other day and uh and like really i'm like yeah there's a little dent and actually sometimes it gets sore i think i have one too yeah you'll have one too <laughs> and, and and totally freaked them out because they were like i've got a little dent so it's a genetic genetic defect that we all have now which is the dent in our little finger where our phone rests it's really disturbing isn't it <laughs> it was genetic we'd be born with it well well the next generations next generations may have a natural dent in their little finger <laughs> you don't have it on the other side it's only on the <laughs> The other thing that's happened uh, with this um, saga, can I call it a saga? Epic adventure. Saga. It is a saga. 
um, is that I'm getting quite um, good at filtering who I want to work with. Yes, but so, you now you can have a choice. Yeah, well, I can have a choice because I'm in the lucky position of having lots of clients that want to work with me. But but we've um, learned a lot from this process about. Because, well, we want we want to have people that are going to be successful. So if someone's presenting with. Um, you know, it's the dog's fault, for example, that's the first one, right? It's the dog's fault, um, and can it be fixed is the, is the word that sticks out. Um, you already got a little alarm bell or a wee red flag that says, okay, well, they're not seeing things the same way. Yep. Can we help them see it the same way? Um, the dog's not broken, it's just dealing with the situation, and the situation either needs to change or an environment needs to change um, to help the dogs. Yes, we can do a lot of work with dogs, but the dogs. The dog's not really the problem. Dogs are just going to be mirrors of the situation that they're in and they adapt to, to go, well, this is what I need to do to, to work yeah. here. Um, the bigger thing is, how do we get the humans to change so that the dog's got an easier life? <laughs> which we, we knew already, which is why you and I have a partnership, right? So we kind of had already worked that out, yeah. that it's the people that are the factor. And if they gave the dog to you, you'd be able to fix it, no problems. But I think we've really kind of honed in on it's not just enough to recognize that and have the conversations with the owner in some situations in order for this to be successful it must be a human dog partnership both the human must be has to on. invest in themselves yeah and it's not about money either so um you know there is there is that side of it but i think that if both you and i had someone come along going i know that i need to change me and i know that i need to invest some time in the dog help me do that but um, most of the time we have to convince them that actually yeah, they, they need to work on them <laughs> so yeah and it, so in your case especially when you're working with um, dogs that have behavioral issues particularly aggression behavioral issues there is a journey that the owner goes on so we've talked about this on a few podcasts but it's that Disney dog got my dog it's lovable it's unconditional love and support it's everything I need it to be. I don't ever have to worry about my dog like I have to worry about what other people think about me. Oh my God, my dog's growling and biting me. That dog is not the same dog as I thought I had. I now no longer have the unconditional love. My dog doesn't love me, which is now 10 times worse than before because a dog loves you automatically. So if it doesn't, that's really something wrong with you. So you've, you've got that and you've got that broken space in your head. Now you now see your dog differently. But what the human's doing is the human's filling a void yes. that they've got with an animal. Mm -hmm. What they need to be doing is making sure that void's taken care of themselves and not expecting the animal to have the responsibility exactly. of filling that void. Exactly, which is why if they don't work on themselves, if that's the setup, which it is for lots of people, yeah. if that's the setup, if they bring the dog to you, if they learn everything they can and they observe all these changes, when they go back home, they're still going to have a problem because they're still going to be scared of their dog because the void is still there and there's a thing that's glaringly obviously not fitting it and so they, can't, they still can't see it as a dog. So unless they sort themselves out, they can't benefit from anything that's done with a dog and the dog will not be able to stay with them. And we've seen that time and time again. And what we've got now with Jesse and Atlas is absolute evidence of how it really does work to do both and it's lovely seeing some of the things that Jessie posts with that she's absolutely loving her dog at the moment she's loving life with her dog and it's not that he's a perfect dog it's just she doesn't have to worry about that anymore because she knows she'll have 
ways of handling it and he's not got all this pressure on him to be something when he's just a dog she can actually really enjoy him as just a dog and doing dog things and it's i just love watching the videos of it and, and seeing the, the joy that she's getting and and i don't think four weeks ago she could have ever believed she would have joy from her dog again because it felt too broken yeah, she was sad that she'd lost what she thought she was going to get. Yeah. Um, but now she's enjoying the quirky dog that she got. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, it's enjoying the relationship. She's actually now got exactly what she wanted all along. And, yeah, and, and so if we relate this to non-people... Non-people? Non-dog people. There, there are a lot of people that are in relationships with people that are like, he's 99% amazing, there's 1% I hate him. <laughs> and I'm saying this 99% because that's a lot of emails that I'm getting just now are saying my dog's 99% of the time, great dog, yeah. and 1% he's not. And actually it isn't 1%, it's something like 30%. But actually... I always think it's the opposite, right? Because it's like um, you've got management and things that they do that are just really really controlled right so when you've got a dog, dog that you think is like 95 99% great and there's just this one problem that you can't get over you know it it growls when it's on the sofa or it growls when you feed it or something like that and you're like that's not that that's the problem but the reason it's not executing on that problem is because you're managing it into the ground you've got all the stuff that you're doing and I think um, it can often happen in abusive relationships where the person is like really nice really sweet most of the time yeah but then they lose it. And they're just like, that's just, they lose it sometimes, well, but they're really nice. There's person. absolutely a parallel there because the, you know, recently most of the, most of the videos that have been sent are relationship problem videos. So it's not grilling that's the issue, it's the, the dog's feeling towards the human. And the human's so clouded by the love they have for the dog, they can't see what's happening. They're so in a relationship. relationship with their dog. So and they that's, must also, it's horrific to think must of. also be people out there that are having the problems with, with people that they live with, whether it's children or parents or relationships being partners um, and, and how do we deal with that so the first thing we, we think about is ourselves how, how do I get the confidence to stand up for myself and be assertive yeah you need to um, you need to make it not about them so you have to ask what need they are serving so we can we can take it um, in parallel with an, an addiction right an addictive behavior is serving a need we know all behavior serves a purpose and all behavior has a positive intent so you can name any addictive behavior and it will be serving a purpose. There will be some purpose behind it that your brain has decided that's a need that is met. And um, you then lose sight of all the negative side of it or you lose the ability to execute on the negatives because your instinctive need overrides your logical need at all points. So if you're in an abusive relationship with a dog, with a child, with a with a partner then the reason that that relationship is ongoing is because that relationship is meeting a need in you and recognizing that you can never get your needs met by somebody external to you is the first step you can't feel loved if you feel unlovable so it doesn't matter how wonderful your partner is. I, I have had so many clients who've had a partner that they've had for 25 plus years who's been with them, who they think is going to leave them at any moment because they're a horrible person and they're unlovable. And I'm like, not many people stay with you for 25 years 
when you're unlovable. They're seeing something that you can't see in yourself. But the emotion there is not logical at all. It right? isn't. There's no logic to it. So that tells you that it's in your subconscious and it needs reprogramming because it's not logical. So you can't feel loved if you feel unlovable. Here's a question. Can you be addicted to the thought that you're not a lovable person? Like no. if somebody finds out who you are, uh, really, then you know, can you be addicted to that? Addiction is more a behavior than it is a feeling. So you can start your life feeling unlovable, you can live your life trying to avoid anybody finding out that you're an unlovable person and never feeling that anybody could love you, but you ignore it and just keep going anyway. And if that's reprogrammed, there's not that missing link then, that hang on, I feel like I should be unlovable, but I don't feel like I am now, but isn't there a void going to be there? No, because it's not, it's part of that core programming that we need to be loved. One of the things that's interesting is if we look at the... Um, the core survival requirements for every species when it's born to give it the best chance of surviving it's different depending on the species right so if you've got a herd animal survival is about being able to run away and therefore when a horse has a foal the foal needs to be on all four legs straight away and every time I think of horse I think of giraffe by the way just so as you know just from my random They're really brain similar, aren't they? Well, the, the really long neck legs. is just like a bit of a giveaway, though, isn't it? <laughs> Giraffes are the weirdest freaky animal. It's like some kid did a drawing and did it badly, and then somebody turned it into an animal that is now like out there in the real world. It's a very strange thing as a giraffe. But anyway. Imagine having to do yoga just to take a drink. <laughs> well, if you see a baby giraffe, you're like, how the heck does it manage to do that? Get on its four legs and start moving. It's, it's like walking Stunts. on stilts. Imagine being born and walking on stilts. So a herd animal will need to, critical for survival, is that ability to get on four legs. A prey animal is an animal that would normally be aggressive and attacking. But when it's just born, that's a really bad strategy. So a prey animal like a dog needs to, for survival, learn to hide behind its mum, you know, and, and not go into an attacking situation. A human baby can't even sit up for eight months. So a human baby's critical for survival thing is that its mother feeds it. So we can also the human, the human different than the animal is that we're more cognitively based so we've got a short gestation period because we've got so much to learn yes rather than being um having um what's the word i'm looking for and i don't know well, behaviors we've got learned behaviors that are much more um yeah important. but but also you know the the cognitive full cognitive development's one that's not there till the mid-20s so you know we're looking for what what gives us the best chance of staying alive from the moment we're born and in a human, it's making sure there's a, an adult there that is feeding you and looking after you and meeting your needs when you're totally incapable of doing that yourself. With a horse, it's about getting on four legs so you're able to run along with your mother. But you think there'd be a switch off for the human to not need that when they're an adult, whereas it still stays with us. Because we learn as children how to work as adults. So everything that we do as an adult is based on what we learn as a child. So yeah, we, we've got the core programming as a child that is followed then for the rest of our lives. So if you learn that a parent doesn't actually care for you and you interpret that as unlovable, which is unfortunately primitive brain says, therefore I'm unlovable, um, then that's the, that's the model you're working with for the rest of your life. Nothing I do makes me lovable. 
but you want to be loved. You have a genetic need almost to be loved. So you're always seeking it, but you're never going to find it. And that is why a dog, a cat, a hamster, not a fish, because they're not very cuddly, to be honest with you. But, you know, some pets that can give us a bit of oxytocin and we can snuggle with is going to be that unconditional. They don't know me. They don't know who I am. It doesn't matter if I'm in a bad mood. They're still going to love me, whatever. And when that animal doesn't seem to love you, but love somebody else, or everybody knows that dogs love you unconditionally, but my dog doesn't love me. Like, that's a double whammy. That's pretty much the worst case scenario. So I'm like, seriously unlovable now. I was bad enough already, but now even a freaking dog can't love me. He can't win, right? It's a horrible state to be in. And none of it's true. It's nothing to do with love. Yeah, you're right, a dog can't love you because dogs don't love people. That's not how they work. So you know how I have like the opposite problem? <laughs> Like, I'm, I'm too overqualified yeah. to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> too overqualified to be loved. That's a great phrase. And I don't have imposter syndrome. I've got the opposite problem with that as well. Which is shows you know, everybody's unique and everybody interprets things in their own way. But standard phrase, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem, right? But in the situations that you deal with, when owners have a problem with their dog, there is always, almost always, some element of my dog doesn't love me, my dog doesn't like me because it's behaving this way. And this is brand new for me because, you know, I'm, um, yeah, I hadn't seen it that way. And I'm very aware of it now, um, especially because of the Jason situation. I'm seeing that more, that the most important thing is for people to think their dog loves them. Yes. And put my own feelings on that aside because... Today on the walk, for example, we had a talk about rehoming dogs and, you know, my, I, I put my older dogs out over lockdown to people that needed them and um, one of them in particular, she was born on my hands, so she was 12 years old, she just died recently, um, 14, a little collie, and she, stayed, she ended up staying with the, the woman because she didn't want to part with her. I wasn't really part of the deal, but <laughs> didn't want to break her heart. But it was interesting over a few months, had this dog who had no eyes for anybody else her whole life, just me. Uh, after a few months, maybe about four months or so, um, everything was switched over. So I went to visit her and she didn't even see me anymore. <laughs> and, and until, that's hard. It is. Obviously, I've rehomed a lot of dogs in my life, but um, through my work. And it was, it was really strange seeing that brain just completely, you no longer exist. All of my stuff is now to this woman. Um, yeah, it's like, an interesting, like uh, uh, quite a tricky balance in some ways because you, you do care very much about your dogs but you're also able to see the dog welfare independently of the dog so your, your caring about the dog doesn't mean that you lose your mind and think of them as something other than a dog. So but I've always been like, for me, if something happens to me, I want the dog to be able to be happy. And yes. for me, the best way to do that is for it to be as, as good, I'm putting that in air quotes, as good and well-mannered so that anybody who takes the dog on, it would be a pleasure for them. Yeah, you don't want your dog to suffer, right? No, yeah. and, and, the, and the way to do that is that I'm separate from the dog. Um, but really interesting that a dog that I've lived with for 12 years can put all of his emotion, her, her emotions on someone else and I don't exist anymore. But, you know, um, That wouldn't happen with a human. If like, someone lived with you for 12 years, yeah. they might go, I hate you now, yeah. but they might. They wouldn't ever forget what we've been through and just ignore me, do you know? And especially because something bad happened. Yeah. So it wasn't like we fell out or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think most people will struggle to cope with that because they struggle if they've one of the trickiest things for a lot of people is you, if you have a dog for residential, when they come to pick it up, 
I've had people, I've seen people in tears waiting for their dog to come out of your truck after they've been with you for a week and they're so desperate to see this dog and they're like, will it still remember me? And in tears because of that, you know, and it's just like, if it, if it doesn't, it's fine, it'll pick up and it's your relationship with the dog that kind of matters. But that's what we've learned. It's, I think. Like, it's like an alternate reality in our head that we have this amazing relationship with this animal that's um, something like... I don't know, like magical. Well, it's, it's the Disney Dogs thing. It's the Lassie. Lassie, go fetch me a screwdriver. Or I need it to... But the, the, somebody would be... Um, like, don't get me wrong, I would be affected if one of my dogs weren't with me, as long as they were happy. Um, I would miss them, yeah. you know? But to um, behave like some people behave, where it's like an attachment, it's like um, a limb. Mm. Um, it's, it's very, very odd. But if we <laughs> if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have dogs. But I don't have it, and I still have dogs. But you're a dog behaviorist, no, so... No, but I don't, I don't need, like... I still enjoy having them, even though I recognize they're not what other people have, you know, like, think they have. Do you see what I mean? Yes, but you, you recognize also that you're a bit different. <laughs> so people wouldn't get a pet dog. If that bond wasn't there, if that connection wasn't I'm there. I'm not saying I don't have a bond. I still, I think there's still a bond there. It's still very much a sentient being. I'm just very aware that it's, it's not as all-powerful as we think it is. They're not waiting for me after Rainbow Bridge. If in this life they can transfer all that motion in months <laughs> to somebody else. But that's not nice for people to think about. Why? Because a dog why, why is... Why is our emotion so wrapped up in another being? Because we're emotional, we're emotional beings and it's so risky with another human, another another person. So, it's so loaded with all the impact that you have on them and the way they respond to you and how it tracks back to your childhood. But, but what's not risky is investing in yourself. Surely yourself is the one that's the, the most important. But then you don't recognize that. Most people don't recognize that they can change because that's not what society tells us. That's not what psychologists tell us. They tell us that we're broken and we need to take tablets, or we're broken and we can't be fixed. There is no nothing out there that says, hey, you know, if it's getting in the way, you do know you can change it, right? <laughs> they don't know that. They don't even know. In the Your same happiness way, is the most important thing. <laughs> yeah. Say this affirmation when you look in the mirror every day and it'll be fine, you know? It's that, that kind of thinking. So you didn't know the how important the owner was in the relationship. You instinctively kind of got it, which is why we started working together. But you didn't know the scale of how important it was to sort yeah. the owner out. So we don't know what we don't know. And it's to be able to see a stark difference in somebody in the space of three weeks that with such evidence-based difference is an unusual opportunity. But that's what I know is possible when I work with clients. I know that this is what happens. I know it can happen the next day. It can happen within a couple of days. But that's not what anybody tells you. People tell you it's going to be a long slog. You're going to have to work hard and it's going to be hard and painful. And you're always going to have a problem. You're always going to be an addict. You're always going to be an alcoholic. You're always going to have this. You'll just have to learn to live with it. Well, that's like a shame because it's not true. Which is a good note to end our podcast on. At 58 minutes and 36 seconds. <laughs> Thank you. This is more noisy as a Starbucks than the other Starbucks, I think. But it's nicer to sit in. So, and the staff are far nicer. Anyway, speak to you soon.